your Bibles, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 2. Luke's Gospel, chapter number 2. For the past few weeks in our series we've called Home for the Holidays, we've dealt with issues related to how we relate to others. We hope that in conducting ourselves with gospel grace, love, and understanding toward those we gather with during this holiday season, friends and family and colleagues, that we're lending by virtue of our kindness, credibility to the gospel we confess with our mouth. If we have truly been touched by the power of the gospel, that ought to express itself in the ways we interact with those around us. This is the working out of our salvation in fear and trembling as it relates to our love for others. It ought to also be the product of our love for God. One of the byproducts of loving God above all else is a capacity for loving his people, our neighbors, even as we love ourselves. But I want, our, I want us to sort of transition a little bit in this series and for the focus to be just a bit different. We've talked a great deal over the past few weeks about having credibility to witness by virtue of our love for other people. But I want us to make sure this morning that we have shored up, that we are certain as to the message of the gospel, the Christmas message God has called us to preach, God has called us to be about. A couple of weeks ago, Lifeway Research released a study sort of analyzing Americans and our familiarity with the Christmas message. Here's what their research found. Slightly more than one in five Americans, 22%, say they could accurately tell the Christmas story found in the Bible from memory. About 31% say they could tell the story, but would probably miss some details or get some wrong. 25% say they could only give a quick overview, and 17% say they couldn't tell any of the story at all. I, I want you to be mindful of the fact that you can celebrate the Christmas season meeting all of the cultural expectations for Christmas celebrations and completely miss the message of Christmas. So over our study of God's word this morning looms the question, what is the message and meaning of Christmas? So no frills, everything's really basic and simple this morning. I want us to make sure that in our hearts and minds, we are certain as to the message and the meaning of the Christmas season. If you found your way to Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. Here's what God's word says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the lodging place. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, a Savior, who is Messiah the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they'd seen and heard, just as they'd been told. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. For some of you, it sounds funny, and I can guarantee you it's funny reading in something other than the voice and translation of Linus from the Charlie Brown Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, right? But for many others, there'll, there'll be a great deal of unfamiliar about these 20 verses, and I, I want us to slow and to give thought to the basic message conveyed here in these verses. And sometimes as the preacher, you come to passages like this familiar text, and you make the assumption that I'm going to this familiar text, and I know or am comfortable with virtually everything that this passage holds. I anticipated that this week would be a fairly easy week of sermon preparation. What I found is that I probably spent more time with these verses than I have with any passage all year long, as familiar as these verses may be. One of the features of Luke chapter 2 that was refreshingly startling was the history as it set forth in verses 1 through 3. Look there. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Now what's being described there is this particular moment in history. And the teaching of Luke 2 is this, that God interjects himself in human history. God intervenes in human history for the salvation of his people. And that's such a critical juncture in the history of the world. You probably know the names mentioned here in verses 1 through 3, Caesar, Augustus, and Quirinius, for their reference here in Luke chapter 2 and your familiarity with the Christmas story. But there are some noteworthy and powerful historical figures in the periphery of Luke 2, 1 through 3 that are worthy of our mentioning. For instance, Caesar Augustus is not 
a proper name understand you. Caesar is the way you made reference to the emperor of the Roman Empire after the time of Julius Caesar. Every emperor was Caesar somebody. And Augustus was not his name either. In fact, it's an adjective describing the nature of his leadership. It means the august one. The august Caesar is what Caesar Augustus means. It means he was an impressive Caesar. He afforded the empire with great benefits. In fact, Caesar Augustus implemented what is known historically as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that provided for so many of the advantages and benefits enjoyed by the Christian church in the New Testament era. He is a truly noteworthy historical figure. He is himself in the lineage of the great Julius Caesar. You don't have to be a Christian historian to be familiar with Julius Caesar. And he was the brother-in-law to another powerful Roman figure, Mark Antony. You remember Mark Antony from high school literature class? Mark Antony was married to Caesar Augustus's sister, at least until he met Cleopatra. Another noteworthy historical figure from the Egyptian empire. And when Mark Antony met Cleopatra, he decided he had enough of Caesar Augustus's sister and he put her away. And when he put her away, Caesar Augustus decided he'd had enough of Mark Antony and he put him away summarily. So... Octavian, as he is best known, Caesar Augustus comes to rule singularly over the Roman Empire. So you have all of these incredibly significant historical figures alive and well and at work providing this backdrop for the birth of Jesus to obscure parents without a significant lineage, at least by the observation of most, born in Bethlehem which none of us would be aware of except that Jesus was born there, that backdrop, as bright as it may seem, is no match for the glory that shines about the birth of Jesus born in this insignificant village. God could have used any of these noteworthy historical figures. Octavian or Caesar Augustus was known after his death as the savior of the world for the many benefits that he brought to bear in the Roman Empire. And so it is as this pseudo, this fake savior of the world is ruling over the Roman Empire. The true savior of the wor world is born in this remote Judean village we know today as Bethlehem. God has intervened in human history. God has abandoned heaven to put his two feet on his created earth in order to walk among us as our Emmanuel. At a very real moment in time in history, God came down to dwell among us. That is the message of Christmas. Look to verse number three. The Bible says here, so everyone went to be registered 
each to his own town. What's referred to here in verses 1 through 3 and fleshed out to some extent in verses 4 and following is a decree that Caesar Augustus makes that everyone will go to their hometown in order to be registered in this census. Now the function of a census is to make sure that the governing authorities are receiving all they intend to receive or all they feel themselves deserving of when it comes to taxation. And even the inaction of this policy in Judea contributes. It is a part of God's intervention in human history, orchestrating the events of Mary and Joseph's life and even that of the infant Jesus. It seems that Judea was resistant to Caesar's decree initially. They postponed their obedience to this decree for as long as they possibly could. And when realizing that they had no choice but to make themselves subject to the authority of the Roman Empire or face the wrath of the Roman Empire, Judeans all over the countryside found themselves hastening, hustling, and bustling to get to their hometown in order to participate in this registration before it was for them too late. This accounts for taking a, a, a donkey back trip in the third trimester of a pregnancy. Now, as a man, I don't know a lot about pregnancy, but I know you want to avoid travel in the third trimester at all cost. And I know even better than that, you want to avoid donkey back travel in the third trimester, right? The very minute details. It's not just that God's at work and Julius Caesar and Octavian and Mark Antony and Cleopatra and all these extraordinary noteworthy figures in history. It is that God is actively involved in the very minutia, putting his people where he'd have them to be at the right time, in the right place, at the right moment for the salvation of his people. We might note in the way of application that God is actively at work in the minutia of our lives, softening our hearts and conditioning our spirits that in the fullness of time, we might hear the message of the gospel and believe for the salvation of our soul. The very fact that some of you are here this morning is evidence of God's activity in the very details of your life. Something's happened that's quickened your spirit, that's awakened you to the presence of sin. There's an emptiness inside of you. God has given rise to this emptiness in recent days, and you're here looking and longing to find answers you can't find elsewhere. Here, under the preaching of the gospel, the message of Christmas resonates. You hear, you understand, you believe for the salvation of your soul. God is actively at work in our experience, conditioning our hearts to receive the good seed of the gospel. As a believer, you ought to be able to look back over the course of your life and how every chapter, every scene, every episode, God's preparing you to receive the message of the gospel or the fulfillment of that gospel message in your life being carried forth such that others might know the salvation you enjoy in Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that God didn't just spin the world into existence and step away to watch it turn? but that he involves himself, interjects himself in our lives and that of human history for the salvation of his people. It's very easy for us, 
because of our familiarity with passages like this, to read them as though they are distant or disconnected from reality. We read of miracles that way at times, like we're reading mythological bedtime stories. But I want you to note that verses 1 and following meet all the criteria of modern historical analysis. This is not an effort at fashioning a myth or creating a fantasy to serve as an encouragement to you in some abstract or obscure way. But that at a very real time and place in history, God would lay aside the glories of heaven and walk among us as our Emmanuel for our salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the lodging place. Now, in reading verse 7, I'm assuming some level of understanding, understanding that would come from Luke chapter 1. But that may be a dangerous assumption to make, so let's consider for a moment the nature of this pregnancy, the background of this birth. In Luke chapter 1, we're introduced to Mary, soon to be the mother of Jesus, a virgin girl, a maiden girl, just a child, betrothed to Joseph, her soon-to-be husband, and conceived in her virgin womb was the Christ child. Can you imagine the fear that this must have struck in Mary's heart, just a girl, there's enough fear and trepidation to come with that initial pregnancy. A, a, a virgin-born pregnancy? I, 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 will, I will never forget, and I remind Trey from time to time and my wife, the call that I received. Brandy and I have been married for about two months. I was at work. My phone rang, and I answered. And, and my wife was on the other end of the line, and she was inconsolable. And I was almost home before I finally understood what she was trying to explain. She was trying to say through her sobs and wails, I am pregnant. And here we have this maiden girl with this astonishing story behind the pregnancy. The story of the virgin birth is cast according to the conventions and in the terms established for us in the Old Testament. For instance, in the Old Testament, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, gives birth to the promised son Isaac after an extended season of barrenness. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, gives birth to her priest and prophet son after an extended season of barrenness. Samson's mother, Manoah's wife, gives birth to Samson after an extended season of of barrenness, and in each of those examples, and there are more, a hero is born that will bring about the deliverance of God's people on some level after their mother experienced barrenness 
and was up against the improbable odds of bearing a child late in life. You hold that in contrast to what's happening in Luke chapter 1. Whereas it was improbable in those Old Testament examples that a woman older in life, later in life, could bear a child. That now becomes the impossible in Luke chapter 1, that not an older woman, but a virgin girl, a maiden girl, would give birth to a hero that would bring about the deliverance of God's people. What was improbable in the Old Testament is now impossible in Luke chapter 1, but the impossible is, is no obstacle whatsoever for God as he determines to save his people from their sins. This is not just the birth of another child. For the child conceived in Mary's womb is the Christ child, conceived of the Holy Spirit. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them in the end. There are a variety of ways we might spiritualize verse number seven. Those might be that might be dangerous for us, but at least there are hints at. We might make the observation here that this sort of sets the pattern for Jesus' later life and ministry. For all he intends to do, coming into the midst of his own for their salvation, it is quite often the case that he is rejected out of hand rather than being embraced as he ought have been. He came unto his own and many of his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. Look at verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Let's just pause for a moment. Most of how we think about shepherds is either shaped by what we see on television or what we experience in the church Christmas program. So for a moment, let's dispel this notion that being a shepherd is this noble duty. It's not. In an agrarian culture like Israel, it was just about as bad as it got. It was a smelly job, to say the least. This is, this, is, this is not the kind of job or responsibility that little boys in Israel grew up aspiring to. You never ask a little boy in Israel, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he say, shepherd. Not only are these shepherds referred to in verse number eight, these are the night shift shepherds. So even among shepherds, they're the low rung, right? Here we have shepherds in the region of Bethlehem, staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock. Verse 9, then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Isn't it the MO of God to come to to reveal himself to the most humble, the lowly, the most meek among us? Listen to me, brothers and sisters, if you can ever dispel, get rid of in your mind this idea that you're above being helped, that you somehow don't need help, if you can break down your pride and egotism and see yourself for who you are, you might just find Christ waiting for you there in that place of humility. 
God reveals himself through an angel to those lowly shepherds. Verse 10, the angel speaks and says, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today a Savior who is Messiah the Lord was born for you in the city of David. Focus for just a moment on verse number 11. Sometimes we use vocabulary, biblical terminology, in such a way that it loses its meaning, or at least we don't understand its meaning the way we ought to. Note two words in verse 11, Savior and Messiah. Today, a Savior who is Messiah the Lord was born for you in the city of David. To say that the Savior is born is to say Someone has been born, in this case, Jesus has been born in order to save you from something. You need saving, and that's what Jesus came to do. Often we use that terminology with very little understanding as to what is intended. What are we being saved from? When the Bible speaks of our being saved, it has reference to our being saved from the wrath of God against us. You're not being saved so much from Satan. You're not being saved so much from hell. You are being saved by Jesus from the wrath of God against us. Hell is better for you. Satan is better for you than the wrath of Almighty God, whose subjects are hell and Satan. Jesus came to save us from the wrath of God against us. It's reflected in his prayer just the night before he died. He prayed, God, if there's a way this bitter cup of your wrath could pass from me, let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus at the cross drank the bitter cup of God's wrath against us in full that we might be saved from the wrath to come. Savior is born, who is Messiah the Lord. In most English translations, the term Messiah is just translated Christ. And I, I, I like the fact that more recent English translations are moving away from that and translating that term more often now, Messiah. It's, it's, a, it's an effort at helping us to see the connections within the Bible which are attend, uh, intended. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is just one way of translating this concept of Messiah. When you see Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah, it's a reference to the promises of the Old Testament. When the Bible says here, when those angels announce today a Savior who is Messiah the Lord, when the angel says that, what they intend is this. One has come who is the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise. From the most subtle and earliest indicators that there was hope for us in spite of sin. The seed of man will crush the head of the serpent. On through the old covenant, as we learn in the law of Moses, to anticipate a king who puts our interest above his own. To the days of David, where we learn that one in the line of David will rule eternally on the throne of Israel. 
to the days of Isaiah the prophet when this theological bombshell is dropped on the nation of Israel that not only are we looking for a good king and a good priest, we are looking for the God-man, our Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, God among us as our Emmanuel. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. A Savior is born who is the fulfillment of every hopeful expectation we've ever had. That God would interject himself in human history and move on our behalf. That our sin might be carried away and his goodness accredited to us. Today a Savior who is Messiah the Lord was born for you in the city of David. And this will be the sign. You'll find the babe wrapped snugly in cloth lying in the manger. Look at verse 13. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. It is as though the Bethlehem night was lit up with a multitude of angels who sang the heavenly song, glory to God in the highest. Verse 15 says, when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I bet they did. The Bible says in verse 16, they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as they'd been told. We, we have the incredible benefit of historical perspective looking back on the virgin birth of Jesus. What I mean by that is we, we see his birth through the lens of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And for that matter, the experiences of generation after generation after generation of Christians that have come after. But that is a perspective not enjoyed by Mary, Joseph, or even those shepherds. Can you imagine the kinds of conversations they must have had among themselves? Consider Mary and Joseph, these children by today's standards, now entrusted with the care of the only begotten Son of God. It is one thing to receive the promise of God, to be aware that one would be born to Mary. His name would be called Jesus, for he would save his people from their sin. It is quite another thing altogether to see this express itself over time. And, and, and those kinds of conversations must have been fueled. Their interest in knowing more about how this will look for us and how this will look for Jesus must have been fueled by the kind of inquiries they received from these shepherds. Perhaps they'd settle down on that silent night and things were finally still and, and then in walks the shepherds. And they've seen a host of angels. What is this thing that God has done among us? Even years later, as those wise men from the east show up bearing gifts, it must have fueled again this kind of intrigue and interest on the part of Mary and Joseph to know more, to understand in a deeper way what God was doing through their little boy. We have the benefit of looking back at that moment through the lens of history. We have 
the full benefit of understanding the virgin birth of Jesus within the framework of the fuller message of the gospel. We're able now to look back at, at the early days of Jesus' life, even his development as a boy, in so much as the Bible affords us that insight, remaining behind in the temple, even in the absence of his parents. It's the only indicator of any trouble whatsoever in the childhood of Jesus. Mary and Joseph returned to retrieve their boy, the son of God. Talk about responsibility as a parent, right? He reminds them, I must be about my father's business. We have the benefit of perspective that affords us a knowledge of the many miracles that Jesus would work over the course of his life and ministry, his sinless perfection, this radical new ethic that he would call us to, to love our enemies even as ourselves. He would turn this world system on its head. We have the benefit of looking back at the virgin birth of Jesus through the lens of the cross where Jesus, in spite of his innocence, would bear our sin's debt. Jesus doesn't die on the cross as a martyr or a victim. He subjects himself to the agonies of the cross in order to pay the penalty for our sin. His sinless blood is shed that our guilt might be atoned for there. His lifeless body taken down from the tree carted off and tucked away in a borrowed grave outside the city of Jerusalem. His mother, three days later, the very Mary of our passage, friends in tow, would go out to that garden grave three days after his death, find that the stone had been rolled away. The body of Jesus was gone. For moments prior, the dead, cold, lifeless, stiffened body of Jesus began to breathe again. We have the benefit of looking back at the virgin birth of Jesus through the lens of his resurrection power. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is alive. I'd love to know what was more astonishing for Mary, child born in her virginity, or the resurrection of the only begotten Son of God Behold her eye, before her eyes. Listen to me, this morning, the message of Christmas is simple. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan. Jesus came to save us from our sin. This is the message of Christmas. And our response to that, the Bible is clear, our response to that message is twofold. We are to repent of our sin. You and I are sinners. We all like sheep have gone astray. You are a sinful person. I am a sinful person. We are to turn away from those sins and believe on Jesus as the only begotten Son of God who died in our place and rose again the third day. That's how we respond to the message of the gospel. 
And I want you to know, listen, I want you to know, I want you to understand the simplicity of this gospel message. Jesus came to save sinners. Our response to that is to repent and to believe. And you must know that the living Lord Jesus, with nail-scarred hands open wide, beckons by his spirit that we would come to him in repentance and faith. He gladly receives us. It's always been his M.O. that he comes to the meek and the lowly of heart. Like night shift shepherds, he is glad to draw near to those who are outcast and despised. He loves the downtrodden and the discouraged and the despairing. This is who he is. He is gentle and lowly of heart. Oh, brothers and sisters, come to him. Come, come, come. Here's what I know. During the Christmas season, and the same can be said for other seasons of the Christian year, there are those who are hanging around on the periphery of the church who know about Jesus but do not know him in their heart. If that is you this morning, I want you to know there's a place for you in the kingdom of God. If you will break down your pride and yield to the convicting work of God's Holy Spirit, there is grace and mercy sufficient for you. Only come to Christ. For the greatest sinner, no matter what you've done or where you come from, there is grace sufficient for us in the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You must know this is the message and what it intends for us. Jesus came to save sinners. You must repent and believe before it is forever too late. Today, is the day of salvation. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the privilege of preaching the gospel. I would ask now, God, that you would be pleased by the work of your Holy Spirit to draw the net. In those visible and invisible ways, would you call to yourself men and women and boys and girls, young and old, God, in salvation. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction for our sin, from those respectable sins we're inclined to wink and nod at, to the most grievous examples of sins, those that turn our stomach, from which we turn our eyes. May it be known clearly there is grace sufficient to cover all our sins in the shed blood of Jesus. Help us this Christmas season, God, as we remember the virgin birth of our Savior, to regard that moment in time in history when you came down through the lens of the cross, an empty garden grave. Help us to see and to know with absolute assurance, God, that our hope is to be firmly established on this message of the gospel. Thank you for your son and the gift you have entrusted to us. Forgive us, God, of our sin. Break our hearts over our distance from God. Do the greatest miracle that has ever been known, reconciling unholy men to a holy God. And may Jesus receive the glory. In Christ's name.